0: Uh, church, I would invite you to open your Bibles up to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, and uh, when we get into it, we will be in verse 25. Luke 24, 25. Uh, and then I'm going to kind of spark our thoughts a little bit in the direction of the idea of narratives. So what are Meta-narratives, I'm going to give you a definition of this word because it's a relatively big word And uh, people use it a lot and uh, I don't want to like lose you by using this word too much So I'm going to give you a definition to start out with This is what a meta-narrative is A meta-narrative is an overarching story explaining why things are the way that they are So I think like it would be a fair question for you to ask once you get to know me Why is Alex the way that he is? right? Like, why, why is it, what is it about him? What has made him this way? Now, uh, you know, there are many parts of that story. There are many things that I could tell you that would be involved in my formation, but one story that you could tell is that Alex has spent his life being in the constant fear of corporal punishment, uh, so I, uh, I, uh, I only, I think I had to get spanked once as a child, and that's all that it took, because uh, the rest of my life, I spent just being constantly in fear that I was going to both suffer the disapproval and kind of the physical uh, punishment that came along with that, right? And so uh, here's an interesting part that kind of reveals this being a at least some part of a formative piece of my life. Uh, I was at a baseball game. My brother played baseball when I was younger. I was probably five, six years old, something like that. Uh, maybe a little maybe three or four so uh so i'm I'm three or four my brother's at a baseball game and i used to do this thing where i would walk up to the fence the the chain link fence and i would be so interested in the game and i'd put my fingers inside the chain link fence and i'd i'd watch the game and my mom was really anxious about this because she was afraid that a foul ball was going to hit and fly and hit my fingers and smash my fingers right so she told me all the time alex don't do that Uh, alex you need to step away from the fence your fingers are going to get hit you know you don't you want to be careful about this, So on this particular day, uh, me with my fear of, of punishment and uh, disapproval from my mother, uh, I was doing this and it just so happened that uh, at the same time there was a state police officer uh, who was at this baseball game watching with all of us standing right next to me and my mom is getting more and more anxious about my fingers being inside the chain link. Fence, And so her voice raises and she says, Alex, you need to get back here. And I proceed to say, no, mom, don't beat me. Don't beat me. Right? Yeah, that worked well. My mom, my mom really appreciated that. Right? So... So that could like, but that, that reveals to you something about me, right? That is uh, that that tells you something about what is a big piece of my meta narrative, right? So that's that's maybe one uh, one piece. But here's the idea: some meta narratives. So that's just the story of my life, right? Uh, some meta narratives actually like pull back the point of view uh, to say, kind of, how do we explain all things? Like, what is the explanation for everything? Kind of give you the biggest picture possible. They answer the question, why is the world the way that it is, right? So there are some possible metanarratives out there. There's the, nar- uh, the narrative of atheism, right? And that metanarrative I- involves the idea of natural selection. It says, only the strong survive, right? So, so uh, people have grown up, and those who exist now, everything that exists now exists because it was better than and stronger than everything that it defeated to get to this point, right? There is the meta narrative of kind of Islamic jihad, which says, uh, do good for God, and God will do good for you, right? So kill the infidel, and God will reward you do his good deeds and by doing his good deeds you will earn his approval and he will have reward upon reward through you earning these things for him that is like one meta-narrative given to people and then it's interesting Uh, this idea came along called uh, relativism which basically said there's no ultimate meta-narrative like, uh, they, it got tired of uh, different groups trying to come along and say, there's a story that kind of explains everything, why it is the way that it is. Uh, so some folks got tired of that. And so they, they, uh, relativism came along and said, there is no ultimate truth. Every individual makes the meaning that they will make for themselves. So it rejects metanarratives by becoming a metanarrative that says there's no such thing as metanarratives. Right? That's interesting. Okay. So, so there are for what it's worth, there are hosts of other meta narratives out there. But I just want to kind of pull back from this discussion for a bit. Why do human beings do this? Why do we create these stories to help us explain the world? I think it shows that we as a race of people, we long for Significance. We want an explanation for what all of this means. Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes, is like a reflection on what it means to be a human being and live life in this world. Uh, Ecclesiastes three eleven says this: He, that is God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's hearts. Like with everything that we are and everything that we have as a race of people, we are not satisfied until we are connected to a bigger story. We are not satisfied unless we sense our life has some kind of bigger purpose and meaning. Now this is not to say that every single person is kind of acutely aware of the particular meta narrative that their life is connected to, but it is to say that by and large, as people throughout history, we have sought to develop these overarching stories because God has put in our hearts a longing for that which is beyond us. There is something in all of us that longs for a compelling meta narrative. So, we're in a series called The Bible. If you've been able to be with us over the past uh, three weeks, we have kind of provided some conclusions. So, I just want to give like a brief review of the conclusions that we've drawn from the last three weeks. So this is the Bible. First of all, the Bible is God's message to us about himself. If he did not reveal himself to us, there are things about him that we could not know, but he has told us things about himself and put them into words in Scripture. The Bible is authoritative in all that it says, meaning that when God writes words, being the creator of the universe who is powerful enough to create everything, we kind of just have to trust what he says because he's more powerful than we are, right? So uh, he wrote those words down. He gave those words to people. They put them in scripture and therefore the Bible is authoritative in all that it says. The Bible is a miracle that works miracles, right? So by its very existence, it is a miracle that it would even come about. But on top of that, it does not return void. When God speaks his words out there, it, it, it works wonders and draws people to God and helps them understand things they could not previously understand. And uh, the book of Romans says that the word of God, the gospel, is powerful for salvation, to save people from hell. And then finally, the Bible is, and this is what we've looked at, really kind of delved deeply into the last two weeks, the Bible is accurate and reliable. So in the, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we kind of examined what the stories of these things were, what they were doing, and then how the transmission of the manuscripts that were written down was a meticulous process that people were very intentional with to make sure that the, the words that God intended to communicate were the words that we received it is accurate and reliable so if all of this is true then how the bible defines reality must be trusted as true right as accurate and authoritative and descriptive of how things actually are so then it's worth asking how does the bible define reality well the bible defines reality by telling a story it tells a story. It provides a meta-narrative, an overarching story of why things are the way that they are. So can we be really honest about something really quick? There can only be one true meta-narrative. Like, only one of the meta-narratives can be true, because what do they do? Well, well, meta-narratives, in this kind of big-picture view, they are all trying to describe what is ultimate. Right? They're all trying to tell us what is most significant. And so if each one presents a different case for what is ultimate and what is most significant, then what that means is that they are by nature in conflict with each other. Right? So, so if one of them is true, that means the rest cannot be true. So if what we've said about the Bible is true, and the Bible is telling us a meta narrative, then what that means is that the Bible tells not just any story but the only story. So every other meta-narrative, insofar as it tries to describe what is ultimate, is a lie. Right? They are distortions of the truth. They are crafted by Satan to keep us from discerning the truth of God, and they ultimately send people to hell by keeping them from knowing God. So today, since the Bible defines reality... By telling a story I think it's fair for us to ask What story is scripture telling? So it tells us a story in six parts And we're going to look at those six parts this morning So uh, this is why we're in the Gospel of Luke The Gospel of Luke tells us a story Jesus, after his death He appears to uh, a couple of women Both of them named Mary One of, his, uh, one of them his mother One of them was his, one of his disciples And uh, uh, after the empty tomb was discovered Jesus appears to these women The risen Jesus appears to them And, and so they, the, the women come and tell this story To these disciples But the disciples don't see Jesus And there's a lot of confusion About what is happening Why is Jesus' tomb empty And so then it kind of moves the, the, the picture to these two disciples Who are walking along the road They're leaving Jerusalem To go to this city called Emmaus and uh, Jesus appears while these guys are walking along the road. And they're talking about all the things that have happened over the past two days. And, and, and so Jesus is walking and comes up to them and he says, what is this thing that you're talking about? What are you discussing together? And they don't recognize him. And so, uh, so he hears them and, and it's like they're trying to put the pieces together but they don't understand what all of it means. And so Jesus enters into this conversation and he says this, being not recognized by these disciples, he says this in verse 25. He said to them, Oh foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? What he's saying is, like, shouldn't you have expected these things? Like, weren't you paying attention? The implication is, like, don't you read your Bible Right, like, and then he begins talking about himself in the third person, right? Because they don't recognize him yet, and he talks about the Christ. Christ is the word for Messiah, for King. Uh, this is how Israel understood the role that Jesus played, and so he's going to show them how the things that they've witnessed over the last few days, I, actually, as you read Scripture, they were to be expected. So verse 27 says this, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The risen Jesus opens up scripture and begins talking to them about the Christ, the Messiah. Now, we don't know. Uh, We don't know actually like all the passages that Jesus took these two disciples to. Uh, We don't know all of the things that he said, but we do know a few things. We know that uh, through the efforts of various New Testament writers and then through like reading the Old Testament in light of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, we have kind of understanding of the incredible ways that Jesus both brings clarity to the meaning of the Old Testament Right? This is what it says when he said, uh, it says he interpreted to them the things that were written down in the scriptures concerning himself. Right? It brings clarity to the meaning that is there. And then Jesus himself also is the fulfillment of the, prop, uh, the promises of the Old Testament. So what Jesus does in this moment, because these are two Jewish people, all the scriptures that they've had all their lives is the Old Testament. Jesus comes along and points to, you know, without them knowing who he is, says the Christ gives meaning where you could not previously find meaning. And he helps you to understand, and also he fulfills the promises that have been there all along. And so he completes their meta narrative for them, he fills in the blanks, right? They've known the scriptures. They've believed in Yahweh, the I Am, the Almighty, but there's mystery in many of these passages, and he helps to bring things full circle for them. So while we don't know exactly what he said, what we can do is kind of go back and consider the story that all the scriptures tell in light of Jesus. And that's what we're going to do. So this is a story in six parts. The first part is this, the Bible story, part one, creation. God made everything good, and humans very good. God made everything good and humans very good. When it says, beginning with Moses, we talked about this two weeks ago, uh, when the New Testament refers to Moses when it's talking about scripture, it's actually talking about the first five books of the Bible, the law, the, the books that Moses wrote down. Meaning that Jesus, beginning with Moses, it's telling us he went all the way back to the book of Genesis, where it says, in the beginning God. And Jesus said, you know, the Christ was there. Right? Do you remember how Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples and talking to the Pharisees, he said, before Abraham was, I am. Right? How Christ identified himself as the Son, and not just as the Son, but like as one with the Father. He was in the beginning with God. I imagine him saying, you know what, you may have never considered this, but the one you call Jesus was there at the Father's side, crafting every piece of creation with him. Right, that, and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were there in infinite power and wisdom and creativity, and they were putting creation together piece by piece. And do you know what the crowning achievement of creation was? Genesis 126. Then God said, let us, isn't that funny, it says us there, let us make man in our image after our likeness, to to be made, for God to say, let us make man in our image. An image is a reflection of God's nature in creation, like the glory of God reflecting to uh, creation who God is, a description to creation of what God is, so both male and female are bearing the image of God to creation and then it says in verse 28 they give they have responsibility these human beings that God has created be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have Dominion. So then he, he gives them kind of authority, dominion over creation. He says, you have a responsibility. You are not just made, but you are made to rule and to exercise authority and responsibility and carry out a purpose. And all of this while they share in this beautiful relationship with him as their father. And then verse 31, God finishes this up and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening... And there was morning, the sixth day. For what it's worth, every other piece of creation up to this point, God has only said it was good. But when he finishes with the creation of human beings, he says it was very good. This is a way of saying things are whole and right and pristine and holy and the way they are supposed to be. The Bible has a word for this. It calls it shalom, peace, peace things are right. And then the next movement of the story comes very quickly. Part two of God's grand story is this fall. Satan lied. Humans rebelled. Death entered. Creation is broken. So so God set boundaries for these humans as an expression of their relationship to him, right? So so they have this responsibility to exercise dominion and authority, but they do so under his authority and in loving relationship with him. So God kind of has to have the DTR talk with them. For those of you who don't know, DTR means define the relationship, right? We have to define the relationship with each other. And God says to them, here are my boundaries. Everything I've made is for you. Every piece of it, the whole thing. I give you every tree and the garden as provision for you. I give you responsibility. This whole thing is yours except for one thing. There's a tree in that garden and you are not to go near it. Genesis 2:17. He said, everything, it's all for you, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. God graciously extends to humanity all things for their good, for this peaceful, uh, kind of whole, good, right place that they have responsibility over, and says, but there's one place, that was, let's define the relationship. There's one place around which my boundaries exist, and you cannot go and eat of that tree. Everything is good now. God is saying, you know what, everything is good now. You know only good. You only know of what is right, but if you eat of that tree, what you are doing is you are welcoming evil into my creation. And I will you not allow you to survive with evil welcomed into creation. And then this snake comes along and says, did God really say that you shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden? Well, no, he didn't say you shouldn't eat of any tree. He said, I shouldn't eat of that tree. But, but Eve doesn't listen, and, and Adam and Eve, they kind of go along and they let him kind of weave more lies. He, the, the, the snake says he doesn't want you to eat because he knows that you'll be like him. Right? And and, and conveys this idea that, you know what, more knowledge is a good thing. Don't listen to him. God is keeping something from you. And Adam and Eve, they eat of this tree that God had said it's off limits. Effectively saying to God, you know what, we'll define the relationship. And God keeps his word. With their rebellion comes death. Not that they die on the spot, but that the eternal nature of their life that God created them with is taken from them. And then the image that they were created in becomes marred, and they experience separation from God. God actually says, I'm going to send you out of this garden that I made for you to be in relationship with me. You have to leave my presence. And that's the reality that we start to learn that God is holy and he has no part with evil. And then from there, sin and rebellion kind of, and evil ripple outward through creation into every generation of creation. You have murder and stealing and opposition to God and rape and dishonest gain. And by the time you get to chapter 6 of Genesis, this is a very quick story that's progressing. Chapter, uh, chapter 6, verses 5 and 6 says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And here we recognize two things very quickly. Number one, the world is incredibly broken, right? Not just evil actions, right? That's what this reference is. But the reality is that this evil that we have allowed into creation has made it so that our bodies get disease. So that creation has somehow lost its luster over time that has been crushed by the welcoming of evil into it. And we still observe these things today. You really only have to turn the news on for one minute to be able to figure out that creation is a very broken place. So we recognize that. And then the second thing we recognize from this is that God is anything but indifferent to the brokenness. He wants to do something about it. It breaks his heart. So even quicker, interestingly enough, even quicker than the second movement movement comes along is the third movement. It's like almost instantaneously, as soon as humanity allows evil into creation, almost instantaneously God begins the third movement of the story. In Genesis chapter 3, sorry, uh, part 3 of this story that God is telling is promise. God planned to make things whole. That as soon as God sees brokenness and sees the effect that it is already starting to have, he instantly steps in and says, I have a plan to do something about this. And so in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he pronounces these curses, a curse over the man and a curse over the woman and then uh, a curse over the serpent. He talks to the serpent, who lied to humanity. And it says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15 is incredibly interesting. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now remember, the serpent is Satan. He is the kind of... uh, picture of evil and he himself is evil I would put enmity you and the woman are going to be fighting each other and then I'm going to put enmity between your offspring and her offspring and then it says this he meaning as these words this curse is spoken God has in mind a singular person who is going to come along and bruise your head he's going to come along and crush your head, and you're going to leave a little nick on his heel. Right, so a promise is made to this liar that, uh, that his time is limited because someone is coming to deal with him. So I imagine Jesus, as he's opening the scriptures with these two disciples who don't know that it's him who's sitting there with him, uh, and, and he looks at this promise and he says to them, you know what, this promise was about the Christ that someone who could defeat the liar and deal with the effects of evil was coming. And this is the first of many promises echoed throughout the generations of a plan that God has made to make right the wrong that has been committed. So it's funny, you look through the the story of the scriptures and what you see is God promising things to particular people. So so, uh, the earth gets really bad, God decides to flood the earth in judgment, he saves Noah, and then after the flood is over with, he gives a promise to Noah, and he says, I am not going to handle sin in this way again, implying I have a different plan for the way that I'm going to handle sin. And then he goes to Abraham and says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make your family a great nation, and the world will be blessed. Through the people, the children who come through you, this nation is going to be a blessing to the world in some way. And then he comes to Moses and says, "Moses, uh, you have come now. I'm sending you to save Israel, so that Israel can go and be a light to the nations." And then you have the story of Passover and the story of and the the picture of the temple that tells us that sin has to be paid for in blood, and only by the blood of a lamb. And that's the only way that you get access to me. And then you have a promise to David, who is a king. Uh, and he is told, David is told, that a king is coming after him, a Messiah, whose line and whose throne will last forever. And then in the book of Isaiah, you get all these promises that Isaiah chapter 9, a king is coming whose name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 35 says, God actually says, I'm coming to be with my people And with my coming will come a work of wholeness that the lame will leap like deer and the blind will see and the deaf will hear and the dumb will speak. And Isaiah 53 says that there is a servant who is coming and he will pay pay for transgressions with his blood and heal wounds with his body. And through a nation, which that nation was Israel, God's people, That's the people through whom he was extending this promise to the world. God was working to bring his plan of wholeness to all the world. He made a promise after a promise after a promise, each one building on the previous one. And every step of the way, over the course of hundreds of years, he is progressively revealing more of his plan, first to this nation, but then through this nation to the world. So I imagine what Jesus did with these disciples is he went through and he looked at every single one of those promises with these two disciples. And he says, do you see how this promise was about the Christ? And then this one, do you see how that one's about the Christ? And then also this one, do you see how this one is about the Christ? So a note, while God is promising, sin and rebellion do not stop. They continue wreaking havoc in the world. They touch even every person to whom God made a promise, right? Uh, We see that Israel actually, like, as we examine them over the course of their existence, they were a legitimately terrible nation at times, right? And, And for what it's worth, the people that we call heroes in the Old Testament, like, there's nothing stellar about the majority of them, right? Right? Many of them sometimes murderers, adulterers, liars, Yet God, out of mercy and love, kept his promises because he was still moving forward this plan for the whole world. That moves us to the next part of the story. Part four, redemption. We've now moved out of the Old Testament into the New Testament. Right now, these two disciples, they don't have New Testament written down for them, but they are aware of the actions of Jesus, the things that he did and said, and so Jesus is now going to make a connection for them between what the Old Testament was pro- promising and then what G- what he himself the Christ actually did. So part 4 redemption the Christ extended welcome to rebels by paying for their rebellion and conquering death. So Jesus says, "Don't you see how Christ, the Christ was the I am himself entering into creation." And what did the Christ talked about? Well, well he talked about the kingdom. He said things like, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. The Christ saw himself as king. And what is the kingdom but the place where God rules and lives in right relationship with his people? And what did this king do? Well, he did what the king was always promised to do. He dealt with the rebellion that kept humans distant from God. So Isaiah 53 tells us all about this. Isaiah 53, 4 the redemption that was accomplished. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. This speaks of brokenness being carried on the shoulders of the one who has come to serve, the one who has come as king. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. This speaks of punishment that this king endured. Verse 5. But he was pierced, For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. This speaks of an exchange being made, of payment being executed, that one thing was done in place of another. He was pierced for our transgressions. He paid piercing for our transgressions. He paid crushing for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds. We are healed, and this speaks of a gift that is received. This passage, I'm sure Jesus spent a lot of time in this passage for what it's worth. Uh, Verse 11 wraps up this passage, and it says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, the king that I am sending, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So you remember that part that we said earlier where God had to send them out of the garden because of what they had done. He had to remove them from his presence because he has no part with evil. Yet God still longed to be in relationship with his creation. So God took on flesh and carried brokenness and endured punishment like a spotless lamb and issued his blood and his wounds as payment for our rebellion and extends to us a gift. And we, broken people, can actually be counted as, what it says here, righteous. Because he bore our rebellion. And we can experience the welcome of God because Jesus willingly gave up his life on the cross. So get this, because this is the craziest thing in the world. At the beginning of the story, God created everything, he created everything, good and whole and right and perfect and humans step in and we were happy to do it until the day when somebody came along and told us, you know what, God is keeping something from you and so we ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We welcomed evil into creation when there was only good. So humanity welcomes evil into God's good creation and God's way of dealing with that was to welcome humanity back to himself by paying the price for evil that they welcomed. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure at this point, Jesus also took them to passages about resurrection how death after he dies this death and after he pays with his wounds how death would not have the final say and there are promises like Ezekiel 37 where you see dry bones and uh as uh as Ezekiel is told to prophesy by God God says prophesy over these bones as Ezekiel is speaking over these bones that uh the bones come to life and they uh stack one on top of the other and uh muscle starts to show up on these bones and sinews and and the bones literally raise from the dead I'm sure Jesus pointed to that and don't he said don't you see that resurrection was coming in this story discussing with them all along how God's plan was to undo death and bring new life and how they probably should have listened to those women who said the Christ is alive and that moves us to part 6 of the story recreation The Christ will return, making all things right and making all things new. The Old Testament has two categories of promises related to the end of time, related to the end of the story that God is telling. The first promise it has is a promise about this thing called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is this time that will happen when God will make things right. And then after the day of the Lord comes this making of all things new. So first, let's talk about the day of the Lord. I'm sure Jesus promise them. Like the, the payment of the Christ for sin, that covers the sins of those who would believe and follow the Christ, but sin is not yet eradicated. And there is still coming a day of the Lord when justice will be carried out. So Obadiah 15 and 16 tells this, and you can just read through all of the prophets of the Old Testament. They constantly speak of this thing called the day of the Lord. Verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall continually drink. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. What he's doing is he is looking at what has happened to Israel and the misery that they have suffered because of their sins. And he said, the same thing is going to happen to the rest of the world. That, that there will be judgment that is carried out and executed. Like promises like this can be found all over the prophets of the Old Testament. They speak of final judgment of Israel for sin. They speak of final judgment of the whole world for their sin. And I'm sure, I'm sure Jesus as he was talking to these disciples reminded them of what the Christ spoke about the end of days. I'm sure he pointed out that the Christ would be carrying out these judgments, that the world will face great calamity, that the full implications of the rebellion of humanity will be released or unleashed back upon it. And then the Christ will issue a final reckoning. And I'm sure he took them to these words that the Christ spoke. Do you remember how he was gathered with his disciples and told them about in Matthew 25, 32, before him, will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his rights, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then it goes on and in verse 41 it says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the calamity unleashed on the world and the final judgment together point to one thing. God will not let evil continue to have its way in this world. He will put a decisive end to it. And that the only ones who shall survive God putting an end to evil are those who are made righteous by the blood of the Lamb. And then he is going, so that's the first part. That's the day of the Lord part. But then he is going to remake a new creation. Isaiah 65 speaks of that. So he says, like, let's not just stop at the judgment part, though. Let's go to the end of the story. Let's open to Isaiah 65 where it says in verse 17, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former thing shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. The Christ is coming to make things right. And after he makes things right, he will make things new. And there will be a creation as God actually intended it to be. Where people made in his image, will be unhindered by sin or death, and there will be wholeness and rightness and holiness and goodness, and creation will be fully good and fully right. This is the grand story that God has been telling throughout the ages. So then Luke 24, as Jesus is interacting with these disciples, Luke 24 wraps up this kind of interaction for us. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if they were going farther. But they they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is evening, and, and the day is now far spent. So Jesus went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, He took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Imagine hearing Jesus tell this story, recount the big story that God has been telling but you don't know that it's Jesus telling you this. Or even just like, just imagine hearing this story that we just told, these uh, six parts. Imagine hearing this story with no context at all for what any of it means. Like, some listeners might find it particularly compelling, uh, kind of like these disciples did. Their, their hearts burned within them. That's what it says in just a little bit. Or, you know what, some, some might listen to this story and be kind of indifferent to what it means. Consider it to be a silly fantasy, Right? But there is this moment where they are eating together, right? They're sharing kind of this moment of intimacy and hospitality with these two disciples. They're sharing it with this guy who they don't recognize. And as he breaks the bread with them, their eyes are opened and they see the Christ who gave up his life on the cross is alive and he's sitting with them at a table. And whether you find this story very compelling or whether you're kind of indifferent to the story, the fact that the story is told by a person who is raised from the dead lends credence to this metanarrative above all other metanarratives. Right? In a moment when they realize that this is the risen Christ, it's like everything clicks into place. And I don't know about you, and I've said this before, but if somebody who is raised from the dead tells me what he thinks is true, I'm going to be inclined to believe him. So this is how it ends. It says, And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? So what? What do we do with this? Number one, part five. The church. The Christ is gathering a people to himself. Some of y'all thought I messed up right? You were paying attention. You're like, oh, you skipped one. Oops. Nope. But this one is here because it's the application, right? It's the what do we walk away with? What do we do? Because this is the part of the story that we are in right now. The work of redemption has been done, and now God has sent people on a mission, right? To share the good news of healing and forgiveness in Jesus, to invite people to follow him and to be a part of the work that he's doing, to invite people to be transformed by the renewing of their minds in this story that he has built since the beginning of the world. And how does Christ form this new people? In Acts 2, at Pentecost, he sends the Holy Spirit. God himself takes up residence inside of the followers of Jesus. This, uh, and this Holy Spirit who comes is the presence of the living God with us, meaning that when Jesus paid for our sins with his blood, he created the possibility that we could now have fellowship with God, that we could be where God is. And the Holy Spirit comes and provides the progressive sanctification and cleansing from the inside out and helps us to understand that we are a part of this story that God is telling and helps us to kind of identify with the story more and more as we go along so that it changes us as we go deeper into it and we begin to see kind of our crooked desires disappear from within us and the hateful attitudes that we have fall off and then we start to experience the Holy Spirit making us new creations and then we know his gifting so that we can go and serve and be empowered to to speak God's word to people in the hope that there's a story that God is telling that they can be a part of and extend God's work. This is the crazy thing. Holy Spirit comes. And then what God was doing In a particular nation, in a particular geographic place and time, when God sends the Holy Spirit, on the day of Pentecost, when people who live all over the known world are gathered there in that place, he sends the Holy Spirit and they go out, and now something that was just for one nation has become for all nations. And so they go out and share the story, and invite people to be a part of the story so that people everywhere in every nook and cranny of the world have the opportunity to hear the good news and respond to it. And what that means for us in this room is that you have one of two parts to play. Number one, you may have the part to play of surrender. Right, If you believe this story is true, then you will let your life be about this story. Right, You will confess your own brokenness to God and say to him, my life is not my own. I want only what you have to offer. No matter what I may disagree with you on or what I may not yet understand, I believe that this story is your story. So maybe it's surrender. That's one of the parts. But maybe you actually have the part to play of Participation. If you have believed and if you have surrendered your life to Jesus, then you are called to participate. Carry out your responsibilities that you have, that he has given you in your life. Carry them out with integrity. Become a respecter of the image of God in all people. Share parts of this story that we told this morning with those in your spheres of influence. Integrate yourself into the community of faith. Give of your time and your money and your skills to support gospel work at home and abroad. Live on God's mission in your neighborhood and your workplace. Participate in this this part of the story that he's telling right now that he's given us to be a part of. The second so what is this. You have this story, each of us in this room, we have been given this story not just for ourselves but to help others understand the big questions of life. Right, so let's go through the parts of the story and imagine what questions they answer. Right? So part one of the story, creation, it answers questions like, where did I come from? Who am I? Why was I made? I hope as we tell this, you're going to be listening to the questions that friends and neighbors of yours might be inclined to ask so that you can come to them with a response. Part two, the fall. Why is the world so broken? Why is God distant? What is wrong with with me part three the promise can anything be done about this brokenness well it just so happens that God spent hundreds of years working through a nation to extend a promise about something that can be done can God still love me will God abandon me I don't know did he abandon that nation that was legitimately terrible and did all the awful things part four redemption what does God's love look like Well, it looks like somebody who is willing to sacrifice himself for his friends. How can I find my way back to God? Who can be forgiven? Part five, the church, answers the question, what is God doing now? How can I be a part of what God is doing? And finally, part six, recreation, how does all of this end? Will evil last forever? What does eternity look like? I want to invite us, church, we are sent out into the world, not just as those who have received God's story, but those who are the testimony of God's story, right? We go out and we exist as a testimony to invite people, these questions, these big picture questions that we just talked about, to invite people to find these questions inside of themselves. And then to be the kind of people who might show them by the way that we live our lives that we actually have legitimate answers to these questions. And then finally, to be those who tell with our words the truth of the story which God has provided in his word and that he has been telling throughout the ages. Church, would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, all all of creation, all of the word, everything, it has pointed us and directed us to you. All of history has pointed us and directed us to you. And as your body of the church here this morning, Lord, we are gathered together to proclaim that there is no other story to be told besides this story. Would you let this story sink into our hearts? Would you help us to understand the role that we have to play in this story? Would you help us to be those who know how to more and more compellingly share, share this story with other people? Would you allow this story to change us, continue changing us? Jesus, thank you for giving us your word, for coming and dying, and showing us that you had power over death. Thank you for all of this, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.